0: The world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. And now, Dr. George Yankopoulos. Dr. Yankopoulos, welcome to Biotech Nation.
1: Pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, many people first heard of this company. It was just over a year ago. The president contracted COVID, and one of the major treatments was from Regeneron. Tell us about that treatment.
1: Well, as we all know now, one of the ways to try to protect ourselves against COVID is to get vaccinated. And what does the vaccine do? It makes your body be fooled into thinking that you had the virus and then your body makes antibodies against the virus that are induced by the vaccine. And now you're protected as if you had had the infection because you have made your own antibodies. What we pioneered was technology that could make exactly those sorts of antibodies outside of the body. We developed these technologies and invested in doing this over decades, and we used them to come up with a lot of other important drugs for blindness and for allergies and for asthma and for eczema. And most recently, or relatively recently, we adapted these technologies to fight ebola and so our approach developing antibodies the same exact antibodies that your body would use to fight a virus we make them outside of the body we make the best antibodies that your body can make we grow them up in these large bioreactors, we purify them and then we inject them back into you and it's now like you've had the best vaccine possible or that you've already beaten the infection And in a major study done in the Congo in collaboration with the World Health Organization, we showed that our antibodies could actually cure Ebola. And so that was the first ever antibody treatment to treat and cure a viral infection. And so when COVID came around, there was a lot of interest in our effort that we could use the same exact approach that we had used to cure Ebola to fight back against COVID. And in fact, just a couple of days before the president became sick, um, the New York Times featured a big story that said this could be one of the first real hopes to fight back against the pandemic before you could even get perhaps vaccines proven and working. And that's exactly what we had done. And so there was uh, the FDA gave us what they call an emergency use authorization to allow us to treat patients. But before then, for a couple of months before then, it was available as what you call compassionate use. So when we got contacted by the White House, they had seen the recent story in the New York Times that this could do for COVID what we had done for Ebola. And so they went through the standard FDA compassionate use mechanism, just like normal people would do. And we got the treatment to the president. And I do think that based on the history, the fact that we all know the age, the risk factors, and so forth, you know, it's quite possible that, you know, could have been a much worse outcome and a much worse course. And at least our clinical trial data show that of the people who are at high risk and might wind up in the hospital or dying, our Regeneron Cove treatment could save 70 to 80% of those. And it's quite possible that one of those people that we saved was the president, but uh, apparently shortly after he got the treatment, he started feeling a lot better, got released from the hospital and had a good course. So um, like so many people that we've now treated, it's now numbers in the millions. We, we, the data would suggest that we might have saved tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people from hospitalization and death. <sighs>
0: You guys have been around for thirty years. COVID is new. This is a fast pivot. What's the nature of an innovation like that? You, you heard about COVID just about the same time everybody else did, and right away it was decoded. What did you guys do? What What, what is the innovation there? How do you do that?
1: Well, a lot of people think that the entire biopharmaceutical industry, biotech, and so forth, completely changed their focus and somehow escalated the rate of innovation and so forth and came up with new approaches to prevent as in vaccines or to treat such as in antibodies. But the truth is, is unfortunately science doesn't move that quickly. And the real difference maker that allowed us to develop our antibody treatments or the vaccine makers to develop their new mRNA vaccines so rapidly was that many of us had been investing for decades in the underlying technologies that would allow us to do this. And so we have spent decades perfecting this ability to make the sort of antibodies that your own body can make to fight infections or to fight disease, but figuring out how to make them outside of the body and growing them up and getting the best of those antibodies and giving them back. And as I said, we used very related, I mean, the same platform to create treatments for diseases ranging from blindness to asthma and atopic dermatitis and heart disease and so forth. And we adapted them slightly for the Ebola epidemic of a few years ago, uh, led by a very talented young scientist, Christos Kiratsus. So since we had already invested in the platform and we had already adapted it to fight Ebola, Uh, we were perfectly positioned and we did. Our people worked twenty-four-seven and in the midst. Remember, New York was in the epicenter of the initial pandemic. We had unfortunately so many of us had friends, relatives who were in dire straits, hospitalized, some even with the worst possible outcomes. And our people, I consider them heroes. I mean, they're like the frontline workers. They were, you know, they were coming to work every day, working over time, okay, to try to move things as rapidly as possible. But the platforms, the technologies, we built those, many of the same people had been building them for decades. And then we were perfectly positioned to then adapt them and quickly utilize them against COVID. And it was the same thing for the vaccine approaches, particularly the mRNA vaccines. Those inventions and discoveries were made 15 to 20 years ago, and various you know, other players in the biopharm industry were moving them along and then perfectly positioned to exploit them right when the world needed them the most. But we all have to understand this. Science can't turn on a dime. You can't come up with a treatment or a cure or a vaccine for COVID overnight unless you've been investing in those capabilities for years and years and years when nobody else is caring about it when nobody else is paying attention, when nobody else realizes how important it can be, that's when scientists are really making the innovations and companies are making the investments in terms of billions of dollars without knowing if they're ever going to you know, make a drug that helps people or even make a return on those investments.
0: Well, I have to say that this is what, what leads me to my, my really core question here. How do we get people to be innovative scientists. I mean, you co-founded Regeneron with uh, Dr. Leonard Schleifer, two guys from Queens. You know, you could have been, you could have been pumping gas like you say in the old days, but no, you turned out to be MD, PhD scientists. You know, we're, we're talking about, wait a minute, these are real people, regular people, grew up as regular, regular kind of guys. And I'm, I just keep going back to this. How do we make this happen? And my recollection is the call to science usually starts in high school. So let's go there. Take us back to your high school. Is that where it started for you?
1: Well, first of all, let me just agree with you that I think that humanity today is facing so many existential threats and so many of them can only be addressed by science. And so we should be doing our best to take the best and the brightest of the next generation, engage them, give them the call to science and have them answer that because we need the best and brightest minds to try to figure out a solution to everything from disease and pandemics to climate change and new forms of green energy and so forth. So we need this. I, I do think that we were doing a better job of the call to science in my generation. And I think we all have to figure out how to get back to that. You know, I consider myself, you know, I consider my president JFK. And for all those of us who were raised on his speeches, we used to have to memorize them in school after he was assassinated. And they were all about a call to science, a call for the next generation what you can give to America, not what America can give to you. And so much of it was about the moonshot, about curing cancer. And so that started at an early age, inspiring young kids to think if the president is telling you, you got to do science and you got to develop technologies to cure cancer or to get us to the moon and so forth. Um, You know, society is all about that. And, And I think we have to get a little bit more back to that as a society. But as you said, I was always interested in science i was as was my partner len you know we were ordinary kids growing up in the new york city public school system i was you know i grew up in a poor greek immigrant family uh neither of my parents had education because their their lives were interrupted by first world war ii and then there was another war in greece after that and so they came here with nothing but the dream and the belief that like many immigrants that if they just brought their kids to America and they gave them the opportunities that education could, could afford, even without resources. I mean, we were poor. We were living in an apartment for many years and so forth all together with, with, you know, crowded and all that. But it was all about the future. It was all about, you know, pushing the education. And in that environment of the 1960s, you know, starting with JFK, there was a different spirit. I mean, we all believed in the American dream and we all believed that because our president was telling us this, that science and technology was a way that we could give back and we could help this great country. And so I was already hooked. Okay, but you need so much to, to go from that initial call to science and that initial, you know, hook that says, hey, I'm interested in science and take you to the next level. And for me, it happened when I was like I said, I was in the public school system and I heard actually from my sister, who was also ended up becoming a scientist, about this school that was called the Bronx High School of Science. And just because of the name, I said to myself, wow, I'm interested in science. I want to become a scientist. I got to go to the Bronx High School of Science. And it's a public school. You have to take an exam to get into it and so forth. And that became, you know, one of my first dreams. And, you know, didn't I didn't really realize it that I was going to have to take the subway almost two hours every day to go to that school and to come back from where we lived in Queens. Uh, But I was willing to do it because I was so drawn to the science. But going to the Bronx High School of Science, you know, changed my life. I mean, of course I had mentors, you know, science teachers in, in junior high school. I went to junior high school in Long Island City, you know, who recognized that I had an interest and they were fostering it. But when I went to the Bronx High School of Science, the the thing that really changed everything for me was, you know, before that, yeah, I was interested in science, but I was like every other kid, you know, especially, you know, poor kids growing up on the streets of New York City. I was into playing, you know, touch football in the street, and I was into playing stickball and basketball, and my dream was to, you know, become a pro athlete, um, even though I was going to school for science. When I went to the Bronx High School of Science, unlike most schools, they didn't even have a football team. So in, in most schools, it's the captain of the football team that everybody's looks up to and admires. I go to the Bronx High School of Science my first year and I'm walking with somebody and they point out to me in like hushed terms. They say, see that kid over there? That kid won the Westinghouse, the science talent search. That kid is amazing. They're going to go on to do something great. They might win a Nobel Prize. They might cure some disease. And so when the other kids are pointing to the kid who won the science talent search as like the role model, that completely shifted you know, my focus. I went from wanting to become captain of the football team. Well, we didn't have a football team to wanting to win the science talent search. And Things like that make a difference. Who, who the president is, what he's telling you, you know, of course, the push that you get from your parents, you know, special teachers that recognize something when you're in seventh grade or eighth grade. But then that drive of being told, you know, what's cool being a winner of the science talent search. That's cool. And that totally changed my life. And and I turned my focus and attention to doing a science project in high school Once again, I had a couple of great teachers, Mrs. Strom and Mr. Schmuckler. I still remember. I I can't believe looking back now, I I was commuting from Queens. I had like almost a two hour commute, but I had to do a lot of my work before school. They would come in early at like 6 a.m. to open the labs at the school so I could start my project before classes and then finish it after classes. And they're keeping, they're coming in before school and after school, just to do this for me and for countless other kids too. And I'm thinking, wow, how dedicated, how amazing Mrs. Strom and Mr. Schmuckler were to like be doing this for some kid. But um, the whole thing, I was interested in regeneration. We can come back to that. It's not entirely coincidental that the name of our company is Regeneron. But my high school science project was on regeneration. My dream was to be one of the winners of the science talent search. Uh, remarkably, you know, that first dream came true. I ended up becoming one of the winners of the what was then the Westinghouse Science Talent Search because it was sponsored by Westinghouse, which was one of the premier companies of that era, and that gave me the belief that I maybe had special science ability. It's also unbelievable to me that a few years separated by time and space, but what would be my future partner, who I obviously didn't know at the time? He had the same hook. He went to a different high school, but his high school was also one of these premier schools, and he did a science, a Westinghouse science project back then. He wasn't one of the winners like me. I always rib him. He was what they called a semi-finalist back in those days. Um, but that's why <laughs> I run, I run the science of the company, and he sort of runs the business of the company. Um, but that also was one of the major hooks that engaged and inspired him. So, you know, it shows that these things can work. Two ordinary kids from Queens who are coming from, you know, just like everybody else, one an immigrant kid, one the, you know, son of a sweater maker. Okay. Inspired by the system, by the president, by the school system, the public school system, by by the ability to do a science talent search project and get some recognition then that made them believe that maybe they were pretty good at the science thing. Okay. Took them down paths that turned them into physician scientists who eventually ended up meeting and hooking up and getting together. And I still remember when we, when, when I was at my science talent search competition, I got to meet some of the other top kids there. I remember them telling us, imagine if a couple of you guys could, could get together, you guys could change the world. And I don't know if we've changed the world, but I'm, I, I, I think that we got together to do some important things and, and built what I think is a, a great and very innovative company that has come up with whole new approaches to treat diseases, ranging from blindness and allergic diseases to heart disease to now Ebola and COVID-19. And, and I think it's, it's a great story for how you engage, inspire kids and then those kids can come back and help the world.
0: You know, this started as the Westinghouse Talent Search for many years, and then it became the Intel Science Talent Search. And today it's the Regeneron Science Talent Search. I guess that's not a, that wasn't a hard decision to make,
1: huh? Yeah, I I find it it's incredible, you know, full circle story that the the competition, the science talent search, which, as you said, back then it was sponsored by Westinghouse and then Intel, that changed my life, okay, that gave me, that helped inspire, engage me, but also gave me the confidence that I could really do science for a living, Uh, and also my partner, that here we are some 40 years or so later, um, and it's now the Regeneron science talent search. I, I have to say, I mean, we owe that to First of all, Paul Madden, who was another Science Talent Search, you know, uh, winner back in the day, who's a good friend of mine, um, and Craig Barrett, who was the CEO of Intel. And um, they both approached me uh, when it turns out that, uh, unbelievably, when when Craig Barrett was retiring, they decided, Intel, the, the subsequent management, decided not to continue to sponsor the Science Talent Search. And it was in trouble okay and it was potentially gonna be over um and so Paul Madden who was on their board at the time um and he was also in the biotech industry and we were close friends and still are um and Craig Barrett you know talked to me about hey how about if regeneron steps in so i remember of course i i went back and i talked about it with len and he immediately thought we should do this and then i remember But for us, we were a much smaller company at the time. And this was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars commitment um, for many years. And uh, we were nervous about this. And we made a presentation to our board. And we thought, oh, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to be worried about such a small company making such a big commitment. Um, But we have a very different company. I mean, we're founded by two physician scientists, myself and Len. But we also have a board of directors that's predominantly scientists, including, a couple of Nobel Prize winners. Back then, we had three Nobel Prize winners on our board, Al Gilman, Mike Brown, and Joe Goldstein. And when we explained the situation, that they were possibly, it's going to be the end of the science talent search, um, and that uh, you know we wanted to consider taking it on, even though it was going to be such a big commitment for a small company, they then came back on us, and they said, guys, this is your responsibility. (laughs) You better get this done. You can't let the science sound search die. You know, we and so many other scientists recognize how important it is in inspiring, engaging the next generation of scientists. You know, you know, you guys are going to be penalized now if you don't bring us and you don't save the science sound search.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. George Yankopoulos, the president and chief scientific officer of Regeneron.
1: So we had unanimous support Um, at the top from our board of directors. We took it on, like I said, back at a time where maybe we didn't know whether we could really afford it. Um, And I I personally can't believe, because when I was in high school, I used to talk about, I'm working on my Westinghouse. That's how I used to refer to the science project. I used to tell my parents, I'm coming home late tonight, I'm working on my Westinghouse, or I'd be working all weekend on my Westinghouse project. and, And my parents knew I was working on my Westinghouse, I mean, they had no idea what I was actually doing. They knew I was working on the Westinghouse. Now I've gotten to now go to, you know, high schools around the country and see kids who are just like me, you know, so many years later, and they're talking about working on their Regeneron and trying to finish their Regeneron and submitting their Regeneron. And I just, I, I'm just so struck by it and I can't believe it. And I see that, you know, the competition. And the Science Sound Search, that made such a difference to me and to Len and to so many other scientists of our era. It's still doing it, but it now happens to be called the Regeneron Science Sound Search. And as you know, we also took on, after Intel also dropped it, um, um, sponsoring the other major science competition in the country, which is known as ICEF or the International Science and Engineering Fair. So now Regeneron is the sponsor of the major high school science competitions, both the Science Talent Search, it's the Regeneron Science Talent Search, and it's also the Regeneron uh, ISEF. And we couldn't be prouder. And, you know, I every year we, we see uh, the incredible kids who are uh, competing in it, let alone the kids that win it. You know, I often go to Bronx Science, my alma mater, and I see those kids, and they're just like me. I mean, the thing that amazes me about the Bronx High School of Science, it hasn't changed in 100 years. I mean, when I was going there, it was 75 percent first or second generation immigrants, 50 percent below the poverty line, just like me. And now, some 40 years later, the Bronx High School of Science is still, I think, an incredible example of a, a, a public school success story. Okay. It's still 75% first or second generation immigrant, 50% below the poverty line. The only thing that's different is where the kids are coming from. Back then, they were coming from Greece and Russia and Poland and Italy. And now they're coming, a lot of them are coming from Asia, though there's still those that are coming from, you know, Greece and Russia and Italy and so forth. But, you know, it shifts where the immigrants are coming from. But it's a, a true incredible success story, I think, about what makes America great. You know, this hungry next generation of immigrants, their parents bring their kids here, you know, for more opportunity and and us providing it through things like, you know, the great public schools like the Bronx High School of Science and then the kids then delivering and providing, you know, the contributions right back to society. I mean, it's 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 a great uh, ongoing story of how the system should be working and, and i can only hope that we can all figure out ways to just you know do better in terms of more engagement more call to science getting the best and the brightest to really figure out how to find the best and the brightest minds no matter where they might be uh, you know you know tens of millions of dollars we we of our commitment uh is dedicated to raising the schools throughout the country because only about 10 percent of the schools are repeatedly uh, um, competing uh, in these science contests. We got to find the best minds wherever they might be, uh, and so we're doing a lot of work to get all the underrepresented uh, communities and high schools uh, to have that capability, so we can find the talent wherever it might be.
0: Now, I understand when you took over the the uh, science talent search that at the annual dinner or the awards event. Um, there was a, an interesting visitor.
1: Yeah, this, once again, I mean, these stories, I I personally sort of can't believe them. Uh, but it just shows how, you know, talk about paying it forward or, you know, people who are doing the right things for the right reasons It sometimes, you know, can come back and help them out. So um, the Science Talent Search and um, ISEF, the International Science and Engineering Fair, are both run by the Society for Science. Um, uh, and they do a great job. And um, the current head of that is now Maya Ajmira, which we work very closely with her to um, help um, you know, sponsor and run and optimize these competitions and the opportunities for the kids. Well, it turns out that uh, a long time ago, Uh, the counterpart to Maya, the head of the society for science was a guy named Don Harless. And, um, when we had our first, uh, the year that we sponsored the science talent search, we had the award ceremony and event. And, um, somebody said to me that there's an elderly gentleman here, uh, about 90 years old. And so who made a special trip that they wanted to come to this year's event specifically because they wanted to meet me. Could I meet this elderly gentleman, Don Harless? And, um, I, 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 go to meet with him, of course. And he tells me, you know, I haven't been to one of these events for years. I used to be the head of society for science that ran the science talent search. Um, and, Um a few years ago I was going blind. And uh they told me that there was this new miracle drug that I could be given that could give me back the vision that I had lost and keep me from going blind. And I took it and it was a miracle uh medicine for me and I can still see and I I can I can I, I, I was gonna lose the ability to drive or to read or be able to see my grandchildren's faces. I can now do all that. And I found out that you were the inventor of this incredible medicine. And I couldn't believe that the inventor of the medicine that saved my vision was actually one of the kids who was one of the winners of the science talent search that I used to head back in the day. And so I had to come to just personally tell you that I can't believe that that this happened, that one of the kids that I helped move along in their science career, ended up many years later helping me. And I can only hope for you that now you guys are sponsoring this and so forth, that one of the kids that you're going to be awarding tonight is going to maybe do something in the future that might save you or a loved one, just like, you know, it came back to help me out. So it was an incredible story for me. I mean, you can't believe this sort of things happen, but of course, it just shows you know, the value of these science talent search and of ICEF to inspire and engage a generation and how the kids can end up helping so many people, including the actual people who are running, you know, the, the, these programs. I mean, it's incredible. It helps on a population level, but it helps the individuals themselves sometimes too. It's an incredible story.
0: When we think about science and we think about technology, we often start to think about physical things like there's labs and there's a you know there's there's computers and there's a result, there's a pill or a treatment. This is all driven by humans and how humans not just learn facts and processes, but but their approach to life, their behaviors and You have also, and by you, I mean you individually, as I understand it, have also funded something called the Beginner's Mind Initiative at Columbia University, um, and based on a Buddhist principle. And let me let you explain it.
1: Yeah. Well, we actually have not yet initiated the initiative. It's something that I was hoping to collaborate with uh, Dean Jim Valentini, who's the dean at Columbia and um, he had given a terrific speech um, at my, one of my children would uh, uh, graduated from Columbia and he gave uh, a speech during the graduation ceremony. And he talked about beginner's mind, which is this Buddhist Zen principle that says that if we all approached life in general, whether it be other people, or a scientific question with a beginner's mind—that is, with no preconceptions, no stereotypes, a completely open mind, like children have when they meet a new person, um, or they think about a new thing. They have lots of questions, but they don't—they don't have presuppositions because they don't know that much. And that—that that approach to meeting new people without presuppositions or without putting them in any sort of category or box and just letting the interaction define um, the person. Uh, And also when you see an idea or you face a new scientific question to not bring with you all this information and what the whole world thinks about it, but to look at it with a completely open mind, that's how you come up with New solutions um, that nobody's ever thought about before. And it's that that really struck me because we've been involved over the last couple of decades now, mostly in the last decade, um, uh, with bringing about 10 new medicines uh, to the world. And uh, and I was involved, obviously, with (laughs) most of them. And I know that in almost all those cases, it was because we didn't buy the current dogma about a disease or about how to treat a disease or how to cure a disease, we thought about it in a completely different, and new way. And so what Dean Valentini said about how we should approach everything, I realized that that's, in every case where we had success, it was because we followed that principle. And I also think that those principles can really help us deal with You know, a lot of the biases and stereotypes uh, we bring not only when we bring it to science, but when we bring it to just, you know, interpersonal interactions and so forth. And so I'm just a big believer in this. Um, Unfortunately, it's been announced that, you know, Dean Valentini was going to be um, helping me start and running this institute. He has unfortunately recently announced his retirement. And so (laughs) I'm I'm now having conversations with with Dean Valentini to figure out if we can figure out how to pull this off or not. But I I firmly believe in the principle of the beginner's mind. And hopefully uh, with Jim Valentini, whether we do it at Columbia or in some other fashion, uh, we can can try to figure out a way to spread the word about the beginner's mind and how, how I firmly believe, like I said, whether it's science or whether it's people interacting with people bringing that buddhist zen principle um um you know to to how we approach people or ideas or things uh can really greatly benefit us so so i'm i'm i in fact just talked to jim valentini about this today so we'll see if we can figure out a way to to go forward um uh with this uh initiative
0: well dr yakopoulos Uh, I got to tell you right away, I couldn't find it on the Internet. Who gets to call you Yanko?
1: (laughs) Like I said, uh, my early dreams, like for most kids, was to, you know, either uh, be a catcher for the New York Yankees or a middle linebacker for the New York Giants or uh, point guard for the New York Knicks. And so I played a lot of sports growing up. And, you know, when when you play on teams, you know, everybody has a nickname. And so my nickname growing up on every team and what was on the back of my jersey, because it was too long to put Yankopoulos on there, (laughs) it was Yanko. So I went by Yanko. So up until recent up until recently, everybody just called me Yanko. Some people still do. So you can call me Yanko.
0: I'm in. I'm in, Yanko. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, you're always welcome on the show.
1: I really appreciated it, and let's hope, let's hope that together, getting the word out can help the world figure out how to better engage, inspire, and call to science the best and the brightest minds. And let's hope that when we do that, that next generation can do a better job than we did at trying to solve all these existential threats that really face society and humanity right now, because we really need that.
0: Dr. George Yankopoulos is the President and Chief Scientific Officer of Regeneron. More information on the Regeneron Science Talent Search and the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair may be found at societyforscience.org. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotechnation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.